From the EPR Creation Studio, this is Jason Staples bringing you Unconquered with Doc Staples. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by EPR Creations, by Luis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, by Shenandoah Real Estate in the Research Triangle of North Carolina, by Garage Makeovers, the number one garage remodeling company in South Florida, and by my newest advertising partner, Justin Galloway of Benchmark Mortgage. As always, information's in the show notes. Let them know you heard about them from the Unconquered podcast with Doc Staples. Everybody, welcome back. We are going to do a few things on this episode. Uh, first of all, a couple updates on the case against the ACC and the ACC's case against Florida State. And uh, then a little bit of mailbag stuff, and then I will get around to the very begrudging uh, preview of the Florida State-Georgia game, and frankly, a breakdown that none of us want to uh, really have heard or have to deal with, but uh, it is it is coming up, so that's, that's going to be how I close this. Normally, that would be its own episode, its own thing, but you know what? I just don't don't feel like it warrants it, given given the given the circumstances. So, uh, first things first, uh, want to get through uh, a couple things related to the case. Uh, first, a mea culpa. I knew better, but I still somehow, thanks to sleep deprivation or whatever else, uh, hustling through the episode on the last one, I somehow said uh, declarative judgment, and uh, <laughs> I meant a declaratory judgment. <laughs> It is what it is. Sometimes you you just when you're when you're going on these and you're talking fast, uh, you get the wrong terminology. But I digress. Anyway, uh, a couple other things to think about. Uh, I went a little bit more closely through the ACC's filing, which again, as I said, then was clearly a uh, play for venue, since uh, oftentimes when you have competing lawsuits in different states, uh, the first one to get filed will get preferential venue. Uh, so they wanted to preemptively file, uh, for, for that reason. Uh, if that ends up being the deciding factor, then that goes in their case or goes in their, in their favor. The question is whether or not they're going to actually win that, uh, that push for, for venue. Honestly, I'm very surprised that the ACC's grant of rights did not have a, a choice of venue clause where you would expect in a lot of cases, business arrangements like this, pretty much all cases, you expect to have a choice of venue clause that, that, you know, should there be any contest of this, this will be settled in, say, arbitration in the state of North Carolina, or this will be settled in this court in Delaware or whatever. That's a pretty common thing to have in these kinds of of, uh, arrangements. And it seems to me to be a pretty big oversight that 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 isn't in there. Uh, so that Florida State actually can challenge that this grant of rights can be challenged and should be challenged in the state of Florida. So uh, that's going to be really interesting to see how that actually works out with the two two cases and whether there ends up being uh, you know, basically which one ends up winning out in terms of, of preferential venue. And that's going to matter too quite a bit uh, because – I can tell you Florida state is going to want this tried in the state of Florida, not because of the judges being preferential towards Florida state, but rather because of some significant differences in how the state of North Carolina and the state of Florida handle things like damage clauses and uh, liquidated damages and things like that. Uh, 
it would be advantageous for Florida State to have this in the state of Florida, and, and the ACC would be uh, significantly more uh, advantaged in a in a North Carolina court, from what I understand. Uh, I'm still working through this, and uh, I will say uh, the first person that I reached out to on all of this uh, is a buddy of mine. I, I reached out to him saying, "Hey, you know, have you taken a look at these?" Because I knew he'd have a lot of uh, of uh, thoughts on this. And I got back. Uh, yeah, did you notice that it was my office, <laughs> my firm that's in char- that that's handling the ACC case? He's like, "Oh, yeah. Well, then you can't be very helpful." So he was no help. <laughs> but I have been getting. Uh, I have been uh, started to uh, to to hear from a number of people who are uh, much better qualified than I am to uh, to talk through these cases and uh and hopefully I'll get a a few on air and at least one on air uh and we can talk through this as the case goes never thought I'd be covering legal stuff as a part of this gig but you know it's a weird weird world and uh very grateful for those of you attorneys who have uh have reached out uh you know who you are and um thanks for that helping helping me uh, make sure that I don't make a complete fool of myself talking through this stuff so uh Anyhow, um, let's get to some other mailbag stuff. Uh, the first one is from Spearhead. And this, uh, he, he'd asked for what uh, my thoughts were on Marvin Jones Jr. Uh, as a take and what I thought his fit was at Florida State at that end position. Uh, and I, I think there's a lot to break down here. The first thing is, you know, he didn't do at Georgia, you know, he didn't, he didn't flourish at Georgia like the hope was and like the hype was coming out of high school. So of course you've got the, you've got to ask questions about why that, uh, production wasn't there. And I went back through and I looked at a decent amount of his reps at, uh, at Georgia and looked at a few other things. And, you know, I, I think there's a a combination of factors here. One is Georgia sort of played him more in a hybrid role, sort of a true outside linebacker role, uh, dropping him in coverage a good bit. I don't know what the actual splits are on that, but they dropped him in coverage quite a bit. And the thing is, he's a freak. That came out very clearly in the in the tape. In terms of his movement skills, I found myself a couple times going, wow, at the speed and fluidity on the field. <laughs> I mean, he, he's one of those guys, and I don't do that very often where I audibly will go, wow. But, you know, I'll do that when, you know, Jared Verse tackles a quarterback with an offensive lineman, that sort of thing, or Derwin James tosses somebody. You know, that's the kind of thing. There were a few, like, whoa, <laughs> moments on his Georgia tape. Just in terms of the movement skills, the fluidity, the burst, some of those things that showed that talent hasn't disappeared. You know, he's still as a prospect and as a pass rush prospect, he's still in that freak show category where if everything happens to hit right, he could really blossom at Florida state, really develop. And I'm talking about being a one year guy. I mean, that would be kind of the sad part about it is that, you know, he could with a really good off season and and development and all of that, he could be a one year guy at Florida state and turn pro entirely possible. And FSU's had kind of a, a run of guys who've come in and immediately developed and had a chance to go. I mean, Jared verse could have gone last year, chose not to question is whether or not Marvin does that, but 
Yeah. So that's the first thing is in terms of the fluidity, the burst, the, you know, ability to change direction and all of that at his height with his length, you're talking about first round skills, first round talent in that, in that category. But you also could see, you know, the, my concern on some things was, you know, he didn't seem to play super physical. And, you know, I had some concerns on looking at it about, you know, is he a little on the soft side? You know, is he going to be a guy that's going to be, that's going to come in and, and work and and have the kind of attitude and level of physicality of a, of a Jared verse or of a, you know, Jermaine Johnson, you know, those are guys who they brought that edge to the edge position that made, made them that much better than even their physical tools. And, you know, I, I have some, I have some questions about that still thing is it's hard to have that when you've had shoulder injuries and when you're still coming off, you know, fresh off a shoulder surgery and, you know, he missed, I think both spring practices there with the shoulder issue, uh, missed part of his freshman year with the shoulder issue, got the surgery, missed a, most of the, most of the training that you'd get between freshman and sophomore year for that shoulder stuff. So, you know, that's the question is, are we talking about somebody who's just been hurt or are we talking about an actual mentality issue that I don't know? The thing that gives me a lot of confidence about that, if I'm Mike Norvell to take him is I've got his high school coach on staff, right? I, my defensive backs coach, my, my corners coach, Patrick Sertain is the guy who coached him in high school and he knows better than anybody, whether or not that guy is a dog or whether he's not. And if he gets a, a full recommendation from Patrick Sertan, I'm going, okay, yeah, I'm taking that guy. No question. I mean, I'm taking him either way, most likely, but in terms of like, I feel really comfortable if I get the full, the full recommendation there. And, and as far as I can tell, they did. So the next thing I look at is you know, he might be, he's listed at what, six, five, two fifty. That was the, that was the Florida state, uh, listing <sighs> looking at his body. That two fifty appears to be aspirational to me. Now, the thing is he's really long and he's got some lower body heft to him. But the thing that I see with him is a guy that really needs to have a great off season. He needs a great off season with, with storms essentially to, to remake his body the way that Patrick Payton did. And he's starting from way higher on that level than Patrick Payton was. And with a lot more mass to, to start from, but he needs to have that kind of off season where if he can stay healthy and get a great off season from January into August and come in having really developed that upper body, that core and th and those hips to be able to deliver that blow and be able to add some power to the speed. Now you're talking about a guy who's an all ACC type player and a guy that can be a, uh, a double digit sack guy and a guy that can do some of the Jimmy technique that you, that you did with, with Jared verse this year because of the combination of size, length and quickness where he can, you know, kind of, take that out, keep that outside shoulder clean and then peak and then take that B gap too. And when you've got a guy that can do that, that change that radically changes your defense. 
So to me, Marvin Jones was an automatic take as long as Patrick Sertan said, this is a guy that is going to work. This is a guy that I know is going to come in and, and set the tone there. As long as you're getting that, you take that guy because the talent, he is immediately the most talented edge on the Florida State roster, and it's not close. He's a lot more talented than Peyton is. From what I saw in the Georgia tape, he's a lot more talented than Peyton. So you put him opposite Peyton, and now you got a situation that you can win with again. Now, I'm still of the belief that you need to take another edge at least. I think you might need to take two, depending on what kind of guys you get, what kind of body types you get. And also depending on what you feel, what, what you think is going to happen with Jaden Jones. To me, he's the, the real wild card here because he's also another one of those kind of freak show bodies that if he can be fully healthy in that knee and, and have the physicality and all of that and, and develop a little bit technique wise, all of a sudden you've got, you're real comfortable with what you got on the, on the edge. But I think, I think so much depends on, so much hinges on Marvin Jones Jr. having just a great work ethic and working and building his body the way that, that he needs to with Josh Storms through the entire offseason. And if he can do that, and you know, if he's 250 already, he needs to be 260, 265, somewhere between somewhere north of 260, just having built out that upper body, built out, you know, more raw power through the hips to be able to to do what he needs to do on the edge as a true edge. And I don't think he loses much, if any, quickness by doing that. He just becomes a, a really powerful player on on the edge with that with that quickness. So I, I think he can be a weapon. Uh, I think there's a lot to be excited about there. All right, next question. Uh, this is from Mace. Is Norvell willing to be cut, cutthroat with work associates to try to get even better? And this is really basically, is he willing to fire guys if he thinks that they're not going to be uh, what he needs at the position coach level. Yeah, he's absolutely willing to do that. I, I don't think that's, that's not even a question with Mike Norvell. He will do that. If he feels like a guy is, is limiting his program in terms of how high they can climb, then he's going to find another option. But he's also not going to be stupid and do that if he doesn't think he's got a better option. So, and that's the other thing a lot of people don't realize is, you know, you may not, you may have, you know, a seven and a half or an eight on your staff instead of a 10 and you want all tens. You do. You just want all like you want every guy on your, on your, uh, on your staff to be an A, an A level player. You don't want B's, right? But here's the thing. A lot, a lot of those A level guys get hired away and get upgraded jobs pretty quickly. And what happens if you get a B or a B plus guy who's really good and he has some real strengths and some stuff that maybe is not as strong and it's why he's not a true A, you know, A level player, but he's really good at what he does and you can, you know, use some other things to compensate for some of the stuff that he doesn't do quite as well. And if you get rid of that guy, it's not a guarantee you're going to get an A minus or an A. You might end up with another B. You, that's the thing about, about these kind of hires. It's not just a matter of like, well, we need to get rid of this guy because he's, he's not quite, he's not doing everything exactly right. He's not an A-level player. Well, the question is, do, are you confident 
that if you move on from this guy, that you've got an A-level player to put in his place. Norvell's not going to make that call unless he is pretty confident that he's got that guy lined up and that he's going to have a guy to go. So, yeah, uh, I have no, no doubt that he's willing to do that. It's just a matter of he's not going to be stupid either. All right, next question. This is from James. Uh, Brock, uh, my biggest concern with Brock is that he couldn't get the defense moving sideline to sideline, so they just overloaded the box and came after him, uh, Louisville did, and he was too slow to take advantage of it, uh, so consistently the defense was never tired out or softened up for a big play. Is there any way to alter this issue? So I actually don't think this is a, a really accurate reading of of the ACC championship game at all in that respect. Uh, for one thing, Brock is plenty athletic even though he he did hyperextend his knee in the first half against Louisville really on that first run and that did slow him down a good bit in that game uh but athleticism and his ability to run is not really a major concern with him the bigger concern for me in this game is that Florida State has one scholarship quarterback on the roster against a head hunting defense that can run and hits hard so you know you've got to be extra careful and he's got to be extra careful about danger in this game because if he goes down, you're, you're talking about a walk-on. And so, you know, that's, a, that's the issue. Now, the biggest concern that you have, aside from just the, you know, he's got to protect himself and you got to protect him in terms of how you call the game. The biggest concern other than that is that Louisville was able to overload the box and come after him, not because he can't run, but rather because his, he was a little slower on the decision-making process and was more hesitant on some of the downfield stuff and was just, you know, he was a step slow on everything. And if that's what you've got, defenses are going to ultimately notice that. And then if you can't threaten the defense downfield in the secondary, they'll eventually line everybody up within seven or eight yards of the line of scrimmage and tee off on you. And that's what, that's what ultimately Louisville did. Now, you know, I think there's a good chance with, Brock Glenn, that he has that kind of biggest improvement is from the first game to the second situation. Now, it would have helped a lot if he'd had all the first team reps. But, you know, he's had an opportunity to get more up to speed against what he's going to see from Georgia the last couple weeks. And he took first team reps, just not as many of them as he should have. And uh, and he's gotten a chance to see what the scout team is doing and what what Georgia is going to do for more time than what you're normally going to get for preparation against a team like Louisville, you know, in a, in a, in, a, in an in-season game where you're doing it, you get basically two days and then you get a refresher day and then you, you're watching film the night before. And then, you know, it's game time. Now he's going to have had, you know, a couple weeks to get an idea of what George is going to do, what they like to do, what their tendencies are. When you see this, they're probably doing this. When you see this, you make sure they're checking here and you get a sense of here's what we're going to call against this stuff. And here's what we want you to do on that. You get a couple weeks to prep that and he's going to be more comfortable. So that will help. So next question, do you think Tate's Tate Rodemaker's transfer caught Mike off guard or no, he's known that that was going to happen and has been prepping as such. So I do know that as early as September, the coaching staff was discussing whether or not they should take a transfer in the, in the portal for next year. I mean, those are discussions you have to have. And they were aware that if they did take, if they did start to actively court a transfer quarterback, that it would have to, that it would probably mean that Tate Rodemaker would transfer. 
I mean, they, they knew this. That was part of the discussion. So that part didn't catch Norvell off guard at all. He expected that. And that's one of the reasons why they knew, like, look, we're not going to take a quarterback transfer that's an Alex Hornibrook. They're not taking a, you know, mid-level transfer just for depth or whatever. They're, if they're going to take a transfer, they're going to take a guy that they believe is, is a true upgrade at the position. So they knew that there was a good chance that Tate would transfer. And I mean, shoot, I was hearing three weeks ago, I mean, within a week of the, of the snub that there was a decent chance that Tate Rodemaker would not play in the orange bowl. And, you know, people were texting me about this. And the thought was that maybe it was because you hadn't come out of the, out of the protocol soon enough or whatever. There were, there were a number of questions about this, but there was, there was a buzz about whether or not he would actually play in the orange bowl. And then he came out and he took the first team reps, took most of the first team reps for the, the Tallahassee bowl prep practices. So at that point I was like, well, I guess he's playing. And I think that was where Florida state staff was. And then on Christmas day, the day that they're going to be heading down to the orange bowl, he pulls out and says, no, I'm out. That I do think caught them by surprise in terms of the timing. And I think the timing was a gut punch. And honestly, I can't help but think that it was intended to be a gut punch by Tate Rodemaker. Can't, can't help but think that. So yeah, (laughs) not, not good. Uh, not, not, not a, not a good thing at all. So yeah. Um, and frankly, that makes, that makes things much worse for Florida state in the, uh, in the orange bowl, not because Tate is head and shoulders better than Brock Glenn. I, I actually don't think he is. And I think in terms of upside, even now, there's a chance there's a better chance that Brock Glenn goes out there and, and throws darts and and you know handles his business well enough to beat Georgia than there was that Tate Rodemaker would do that. In my in my view, you had a better shot of Glenn doing that than Tate. But the the floor for Rodemaker in that respect is a good bit higher because of the experience, because of some of those other things. And because you knew you had a backup. So that meant that you could actually run him. That meant that you knew that you didn't have to be quite as careful. Now with only one guy, that shifts certain things that you feel as comfortable with. I mean, do you want him getting out there and potentially getting headhunted? You know, even if he's sliding, I mean, we saw what happened against Florida. You're, you're safe. You, you slide, you try to protect yourself and a guy comes in high and now all of a sudden you've got a concussion. That changes the game. That changes the way you can call the game. So that, I think, is the is the bigger issue here. All right, I'm looking at the clock here. Um, honestly, I'm going to go ahead and, and wrap this. Instead of doing the uh, the preview on the on the tail end of this, I'm already at you know 24 minutes, just just under. So uh, I'm going to go ahead and and wrap this episode, and then I'll uh, I'll record another one as the as the preview episode as usual. Even though none of us really want to think about it or, or deal with that side of it, it still deserves its own uh, its own episode. So I'll address that, release that tomorrow. But uh, until then, this has been Unconquered with Doc Staples. Thanks for listening. If you've been enjoying this podcast, please leave a five-star rating over at Apple Podcasts and wherever else you listen to podcasts, post and repost episodes on social media and tell a friend. And if you haven't left a review in a while, do it again. It really does help the visibility of the podcast. Before we go, I'd also like to thank my advertising partners once more. That's EPR Creations, Louis Marquez of Keller Williams Realty in Jacksonville, Florida, Shenandoah Real Estate, 
in the Research Triangle of North Carolina. Garage Makeovers, the number one garage remodeling company in South Florida, and Justin Galloway of Benchmark Mortgage, serving Florida, Alabama, Tennessee, and Kentucky. You can also stop by the Unconquered shop at unconqueredpodcast.com where you can buy stickers, pins, magnets, t-shirts, and other swag. And thanks also to all those supporters over at Patreon where I post video analysis and field questions for the podcast. I am especially grateful to those above the dynasty level. That is Andrew Garrett, Brian Leininger, Neil Cook, Casey Kidd, Chris Chartrand, Dave Blair, Hector Cartagena, Jack Horton, Jimmy Van, Jonathan Kennedy, Keith Cheney, Lee Caswell, Tyler Kashishke, Vince Calandra, and Bert Bertoldi. You all are far more generous than I deserve. I'm really grateful. Thanks to you all. This has been Unconquered with Doc Staples. I'm your host, Jason Staples. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. I made this.